Here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today, I'll be covering the first part of episode 223, Live Together, Die Alone. This is the 47th overall episode, and there are 74 to go. A bit of housekeeping here. Uh, As I did with uh, the season one finale, I will be podcasting it in two parts. Uh, The rationale is basically this. On, on home video versions uh, of the show, particularly, uh, well, whether it's Netflix as I use or just the, uh, the home video versions in terms of uh, the, the, the series box set and this sort of thing, uh, they are presented as separate episodes. Uh, certainly that doesn't take away from the fact that they were designed to be uh, consumed in one sitting, but um, aside from the fact that that this is how people might be be viewing them uh, now, kind of as separate parts, and also given that uh, you know this way it's a uh, you know not a gigantic podcast to to download. Uh, just thought it was a, a better way to go. So we'll be doing the first, uh, whether we want to call it the first part, the first half, or whatever. Certainly, I'm aware that "Live Together, Die Alone" is a two-hour uh, episode, uh, but we'll just be focusing on the first uh, part, first half today. Uh, I'll also quickly mention, too, as we get closer and closer to the uh, launch date of, of uh, Alcatraz on Fox, which actually will be premiering, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, when, it, uh, when the podcast drops on January 16th, it's premiering tonight, the two-hour premiere, and uh, you can uh, check out some of uh, the thoughts of myself and some of the other people from phgeek.com uh, by heading over to alcatraz.podbean.com. Uh, or by searching iTunes for the Alcatraz podcast by phgeek.com. And uh, if you are listening to this and you live on the East Coast of the United States, and it is before 8 p.m. Eastern, you can also join us at phgeek.com for a, uh, a live blog uh, as we watch. And uh, you can either uh, watch our comments or you can hop in and join them too. So with that, enough uh, plugging, certainly. Uh, one little last note about looking back at Lost. Um, I'm pretty much settled on the idea that once we hit February, uh, I'm going to be moving the podcast back to Friday releases. Uh, I just feel that, uh, feel that that, frankly, it was reaching uh, a few more people that way. So not that I'm in this for fame or glory, uh, but, uh, you know, this way a couple, a couple more people can join in on the fun. Um, the basic game plan is this, as I look at the calendar here. Uh, the last Monday in January, Monday, January uh, 30th, uh, that will be after the conclusion of Live Together, Die Alone, because, of course, 
uh, Live Together, Die Alone Part 1 is releasing on the 16th, Part 2 on the 23rd. On the 30th, I'm thinking I'll do kind of a Season 2 retrospective, uh, as well as a Season 3 preview, just to kind of, uh, you know, take an episode to get my head out of uh, looking at each episode individually and kind of step back for a slightly larger picture. Uh, you know, certainly I, I hope to be looking at the larger picture each week on the podcast, but this way it's a real excuse to just take a big step back and look at, uh, where we've been and where we going to, uh, to, uh, quote Forrest Gump there. So that retrospective, uh, episode between seasons two and three, that'll probably be released not probably that will be releasing on January 30th. And then I'm thinking, boom, that next Friday, February 3rd. Uh, we'll jump right into season two as well as the Friday release dates. So unlike what I did uh, over the summer where I actually had skipped 10 days uh, in between the skip from Fridays to Mondays here, we're kind of we're getting that time back. You, you, if, uh, if you're a loyal listener, you'll be getting two episodes in uh, the course of five days. So that uh, you can certainly mark your calendars for once we hit February, all new podcast episodes are going to be released on Friday, starting with the season two premiere uh, on uh, Friday, uh, February 3rd. There we go. I think I have all the dates back. I think that's it's rather fitting too. the podcast started out as a Friday release and um, it, uh, you know, uh, February is the month. Uh, you know, February 2011 is the month that the podcast started, so it's kind of a, a returning home almost. So with that, enough uh, bits and pieces, and uh, let's now jump into the summary for Live Together, Die Alone, Part 1. In flashbacks, Desmond Hume is being released from a military prison for unknown reasons. Upon leaving, he runs into Charles Widmore, who reveals that he prevented communication between his daughter Penelope and Desmond, while the latter was in prison, and strongly warns Desmond against attempting to form a relationship with Penny. Desmond, wanting to prove he is not a coward, travels to the United States from the United Kingdom to train for a race around the world, sponsored by Charles Widmore. He meets Libby in a cafe, and after a deep conversation, Libby gives Desmond a yacht owned by her late husband. While Desmond is training, Penny tracks him down and angrily questions him. Desmond tells her he is determined to win Widmore's race and promises that he will return. However, while sailing, Desmond gets caught in a bad storm and washes up on the island. He is rescued by a man in a yellow hazmat suit, Kelvin Inman, who takes him back to the Dharma Initiative Swan Station. Meanwhile, on the island, while at the funeral for Anna Lucia and Libby, a boat comes into view out at sea. Jack, Saeed, and Sawyer swim out to it and climb onto the boat. They hear music coming from inside it. Shots are fired from inside the boat through the boat hatch entrance. Which I suppose is ironic. Uh, after breaking the hatch open, which is further ironic, uh, they find a drunken Desmond piloting the boat. The next day, after Mr. Echo prevents Locke from destroying the computer that controls the timer, Locke enlists Desmond's help in letting the timer run down to zero. Desmond hotwires the blast doors shut, locking Echo outside the computer room and Desmond and Locke inside it. Echo, distraught, seeks Charlie's help. Elsewhere, the survivors split into two groups to head to the other's camp. Michael, Jack, Kate, Sawyer, and Hurley walk on land to the camp, bringing guns and ammunition with them. 
Meanwhile, Saeed Jarrah, Sun, and Jin plan to use Desmond's sailboat to go by sea. Saeed plans to use Black Smoke as a signal, saying that this time they will know we are coming. Meanwhile, Michael, Jack, Sawyer, Hurley, and Kate engage in a gun battle with some others that were following them, and Sawyer kills one. Jack confronts Michael about leading the group into a trap, and Michael confesses to the murders of Anna Lucia and Libby. Uh, this part of the episode ends with Saeed, Sun, and Jin approaching the other's camp. So with that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. A Certainly a wonderful starter to this episode. Uh, I like that the previously on Lost goes all the way back to the season finale of last season, uh, as well as including, um, in chronological order, the business from Michael's story. Um, it's just, it, it's a nice moment to take a deep breath and say, you know, my goodness, how far we've come. The episode proper opens right where things left off, seeing the mysterious boat. Jack, Saeed, and Sawyer uh, head out to see their savior. And yes, be prepared for some Desmond as Christ discussion in this episode, and no doubt in the next, and no doubt as season two starts. Um... That said, though, as uh, Sawyer, Jack, and Saeed are uh, swimming out to the boat and climbing onto the boat, I imagine that it was a popular scene with certain viewers. The three men, all muscular, two shirtless, all serious business. You know who you are who enjoyed it. Uh, I also love that it's a drunk Desmond sitting in his underwear in a dirty shirt. Uh, it's He's so unassuming. Uh, frankly, I would... You, now, you might say, well, there goes your savior discussion. Well, I'd uh, remind everyone of the fantastic couple of lines from uh, the third Indiana Jones movie, where uh, they're initially looking for the, uh, I believe it's the, the cup of a prince or the cup of a king, and then uh, Indy you know, makes the revelation, you know, no, this is the cup of a carpenter. Uh, you know, a reminder that in the Christian faith, you know, the, the Savior is, uh, you know, a common man and... and lives among us, etc. And I'm certainly not trying to kind of beat the religious drum here. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, you know, in this case, I'm treating the Bible as literature. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, uh, share any uh, religious views or, you know, encourage change or, or whatever. Just, you know, again, the Bible is literature. To see Desmond sitting there in a dirty shirt, drunk, uh, despondent, to me, that's a cup of the carpenter type moment. Here, here is somebody who is, uh, you know, no better than than any of us. Uh, certainly, <laughs> uh, you know, certainly not far off from the sins of many of the, uh, you know, his fellow castaways in the island. And uh, you know, to me, seeing him like that is just supportive of uh, kind of a Desmond as Christ uh, reading. Uh, with that, we then have the title card. Uh, and then an incredulously drunk Desmond in, ca- uh, in camp, uh, complete with, uh, nicely enough, an explanation. <laughs> Do you think I did it on purpose? I was sailing for two and a half weeks. They're in due west and making nine knots. I should have been in Fiji in less than a week. But the first piece of land I saw wasn't Fiji, was it? No. No, it was here, this, this island. And do you know why? Because this is it. This is all there is left. This ocean and this place here, we are stuck in a bloody snow globe. 
There's no outside world, there's no escape. So just, just go here, let me drink. I love how depressed Desmond sounds there. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course it's with some, some built-in, uh, exposition, an explanation of, uh, what he's been doing, uh, since we last saw him. And, uh, it's also, you know, it's setting up in a rather nice way. It's setting up the end of part two of this episode, the, the first time that we see something off of the island. Um, because, I mean, it's fair enough, you know, it, it's, it's a theory that was out there at the time that uh that they were it that this was some sort of uh atlantis end of the world uh type thing you know that kind of in that vein and um you know i mean it wasn't it wasn't beyond the realm of possibility that the show would go in a direction where where there was no escape uh whether it was you know a literal escape off of a literal island or whether it was you know you can't figuratively escape off of this uh afterlife purgatory hell type thing um i think that the 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 rumors of that had probably died down quite a bit uh at this point in 2006 but still they were viable options for the show to go in so here desmond's kind of almost priming us for the very ending of part two by telling us the opposite by telling us this theory that you can't get out that this is it this is the entire world for for whatever uh, bit of uh, you know reason uh, that there might be, um, of course, there's also a, a scientific explanation: the odd magnetics to the island, uh, akin to trying to find north at the North Pole. Once you're there, everything is south. Uh, even though, you know, unless you are at the North Pole, south is the opposite of north. When you're standing at the North Pole, obviously everything is south. So it's this kind of you know how do you how do you properly orient yourself? You know if you're at the North Pole and you say, well, what's the magnetic direction to get to Finland? Uh, it happens to be the same magnetic direction to get you to North America or to Russia. It, and you know it's it's uh, the oddness of magnetics, which of course is a running theme on the show. Um, Desmond, of course, casually asks if the button is still being pushed. Uh, it's a reminder that the button is going to be uh, a larger and larger. Uh, theme in these two episodes and it's also kind of priming the pump uh, because we're going to be finding out what happens when you don't push the button that will finally be answered in uh, in part two of this episode with that we flash back to Desmond getting out of prison uh, a bit of a shocker there I think for first-time viewers that uh, that he was in prison for his uh, unknown crime uh, and you know, he's getting his items back down to that rather new looking version of the picture of Desmond and Penny. Um, and there's a great punctuation to the end of that, uh, that particular scene. The prison term is ended. He's dishonorably discharged from Her Majesty's army. The end. Kind of down to the, 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 the stamping of his uh, uh, military papers. Uh, with that, the episode really zips along uh, as the unnamed man, who of course is Charles Widmore of the Widmore who was teased all season long fame. Uh, the, so Widmore reveals that Desmond's letters to Penny, of which he has boxes and boxes, that they were all unsent. Uh, certainly, you know, it's a great way to um, it's a great way to demonstrate to us how truly evil Widmore is. 
how cold and calculating and you know that he would go to the trouble to to make some sort of deal in the mail room of the military prison to make sure that these letters aren't being sent and then he goes to the further step to put them all nicely into a box so that he can say here's your past close the box here's your future open that box up show him a big box of money and say you know if you scram and never come back you get your future money or you can hang on to your stupid letters and and try and make your way uh great introduction to the character great introduction um he of course also widmore has the line penelope has moved on which i think is meant to send up uh, again you know it's not the first time we've heard penny's name but it's it's meant to reinforce this notion of ulysses wife penelope uh who of course, uh, kept, uh, you know, didn't move on, tried not to move on for the 10 years that Ulysses was gone, uh, to the point that she was uh, delaying uh, attempts for suitors to marry her. Uh, I believe there was, she said, when when such and such that I'm knitting is done, I will will choose a suitor. And then she would knit all day and undo it all night. Uh, So that penny sticks it out for Desmond again and again, until they are finally uh, happily reunited in season five, is it? I guess it is season five. Uh, you know, that's th- that shouldn't be too big a surprise considering the name of the character. Uh, not that they're, of course, tied into uh, you know, treating her as the, uh, the, the Greek Penelope, but again, we shouldn't be too surprised by it. Anyhow, the flashback ends with Widmore calling Desmond a car- uh, coward who always runs, and as much as I like Desmond, which, by the way, for the course of the entire series, I think Desmond is my favorite character. Certainly, Charlie is kind of my favorite overall, but, you know, after the end of the third season, you know, there's there's little, little uh, that we see of him. But um, it's, it's nice to see the, you know, this is the, the first episode of many, many, many in a row to have Desmond. Um, but that said, being called a coward, it is, it is, you know, coward who always runs, it is true enough. You know, based on what we've seen of Desmond, it is true enough. And uh, after that flashback ends, we have you know, something that I've talked about many times in the podcast, the blatant recap, and we have one in spades. On the way to the funeral, I told you that Michael had been compromised by the others. And then you asked me how we might take advantage of that. Now, just for the record, how many times do you say to someone, three hours ago when we spoke, you asked me if there should be more paper for the copier, and I told you that more paper for the copier would be an important thing, and that we would figure out a way to get more paper for the copier today. You know, I mean, I know I know what the show is actually doing. What they're doing is, uh, you know, they're, this is a necessary recap, because Though only a few hours have passed for Jack and Saeed, it's now an entire week uh, between uh, broadcast releases of the of the show. But just a bit, uh, it's just very very blatant there, especially when you're in the boat that we are all, we are all in, where uh, you can watch these episodes back to back. But at any rate, to be fair, that's it for the recap, and Saeed continues with uh, actual pertinent information, a continuation of that thought. I believe faith has given us our answer. The boat. The boat. This camp Michael is leading you to across the island. That is where they will set their trap. While Michael leads you by land, I can approach far more quickly by sea. And I can go ashore undetected. 
Go ashore and do what? Scout them. Their numbers and positions, their weapons. Then I'll go to the nearest beach and start a signal fire with these. They burn with a dark black smoke. You and your team will come to meet me at the signal. And we will go in together. You know, oftentimes the function of exposition spelling out the 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 plan ahead of time it has one of two functions one is so that when it happens we are clear uh exactly what's going on uh one example of this is in the 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 unequaled film citizen kane where uh in the course of his uh the the newsreel footage of his life we have a basic three-minute version of the entire plot spelled out uh in chronological order so that as we delve into flashbacks and perspectives and all that, uh, we kind of have a sense of where things are headed. Another example of this uh, in that fashion is in uh, a, a similarly unequaled film, Titanic, where in the beginning there's the, the uh, Bill Paxton and his, his cronies are explaining uh, what happened uh, when uh, the iceberg hit Titanic and how it flooded, etc., etc., uh, broke, you know, bobbed up and down, broke the keel, bobbed some more, both pieces fell. You know, all of that is spelled out ahead of time so that when you see it happen over the course of an hour, you have a, a basic understanding of it. Certainly, that's the dramatic function here to spell out the plot easily in about 30 seconds. And uh, it also is a bit of a uh, not quite reminder, but it certainly is planting the seeds, you know. Now that you're clear on what should happen, here's hoping nothing goes wrong, dot, dot, dot. Anyhow, the scene ends with Saeed referring to the black uh, smoke signal, as you heard in the clip. Uh, He says, this time, they'll know we are coming. It is a great cap to the scene. It's a great callback to the season finale from last season, and it's just, it's so Saeed. It's kind of uh, thoughtful and calculated and vengeful altogether. With that, we cut to the hatch, and it's Locke trying to convince Echo not to push the button, uh, calling him a slave to the button, which is an interesting writing choice, character choice, uh, you know, having a white man call a black man a slave. Uh, Certainly they, to the show's credit, they cut from Locke saying that to Echo's uh, reaction, um, which (laughs) is not one of of amusement, but... um, just an interesting dialogue choice. Uh, is it Locke trying to push Echo's own buttons? No pun truly intended. I guess that could be it. You know, he's trying to just say anything to to slap Echo into seeing uh, his, Locke's own point of view. Perhaps so. And speaking of callbacks, Echo has the line, do not tell me what I can do. Uh, which, you know, it, it's funny how Locke has become the anti-Locke uh, since losing his faith over the button, uh, which I think is, you know, it's interesting because at a certain point, Locke truly becomes the anti-Locke. Once Locke dies and Smokey takes his form, uh, it's, it's an interesting progression of the character. In these episodes, uh, and in the last couple ones, uh, as well, Locke is such a kind of a whiny, you know, oh, they didn't tell me that this was all for nothing, and now I'm sad, and I'm going to sit on the beach, or I'm going to go in the woods and cry, as, as is going to happen in this episode. Locke is a beloved character. He's rarely a strong character. You know, the, the high point of Locke is, 
you know, well, what are in uh, in walkabout? You know, what are we gonna do for food? Knife gets thrown. We will hunt. I shall go hunt these boar. I have these knives. You know, that's kind of the height of Locke, and it's a very brief peak. And then we have the wheelchair business beforehand. Not that that you know, not that being in a wheelchair makes you inherently weak, but certainly he was a a weak, angry man in the wheelchair, uh, beaten up by life before the wheelchair. Uh, now beaten up by by life and not having this great you know calling from above type thing, so a very flawed character to say the least. Uh, anyhow, speaking of uh, flaws, there's a quick tussle and Locke is quickly kicked out of what used to be his own hatch. With that, uh, we go back to the beach. There's more locking and loading, no pun intended. And also, didn't we have enough locking and loading last week? Uh, and then we have this wonderful moment where Kate gets to speak for the audience. What's the matter? That stuff we found in the medical station. Costumes, makeup, fake beards. What if these people just want us to think they're hillbillies? Listen. Listen, I was there. I saw them. They are hillbillies. They live in huts. They eat fish. They're probably more scared than we are. And they have no idea we're on our way. All right, enough jibber jabber. You know, it's it's a slippery slope to take the show into political territory, but I just couldn't help but think that you know here, here Michael is justifying going to war uh, for faulty reasons, reasons he knows are not true, uh, reasons that just uh, feed some sort of uh, selfish uh, father son uh, desire. Uh, however well-placed and excusable we might call it when we put ourselves in his shoes uh and here we just have him repeating the same couple mantras over and over and over uh in order to justify uh, going to war uh (laughs) and if there's a political connection there i suppose uh such connections can be made by you the listener uh well you know this is certainly not a political podcast but whether the show is making a reference uh, intentionally or whether it's some sort of subconscious uh, you know, thing that's in the zeitgeist of the writer's room uh, as they watch CNN, I don't know. But I, I think it's worth mentioning uh, nonetheless. Uh, I, I also like, too, that from that clip, it's a chance for the show to reflect what we are saying at home. Uh, you know, that we guess that these people aren't as dumb as, as we'd like to claim. Uh, there's also, you know, the suggestion of differing opinions. Kate saw the fake beard and the fake clothes with her own eyes, so it's much more compelling uh, than those who hear it secondhand. Where you know, you might say, kind of, you know, off off camera, or you might say something like, "Oh, well, Kate's nice and all, but sometimes she can jump to conclusions." You know, boom! By just saying that, you now are not entirely sure, you know, do you believe her, do you not, maybe it was, you know, some Elmer's glue, it wasn't theatrical glue, you know, it's kind of, there's enough wiggle room for them to, uh, uh, you know, for people not to be saying, well, stop, Kate, let's let's really discuss this here, which, of course, would spoil not the not just the momentum of the show, but the, uh, the, the magic of drama. Uh, with that, we take an act break, uh, and this is an episode that really is zipping along, Granted, to be fair, it is a tad shorter uh, since it was broadcasted with part two. 
this episode comes in at about 43 minutes total, including the credits. Uh, Generally, it's about 42 or 43 before the credits start. So, again, just a teensy bit shorter. Um, After the act break, we return. There's a shot of the rear of the boat named Elizabeth. I wonder how many people connected Elizabeth and Libby during the course of the next few scenes. Uh, certainly it's not a, uh, a mystery for long, but, you know, that, that moment where you pause your recording or you pause the DVR or while it's just still running, you're, you're, you're talking to the people that you're watching it with. No, no doubt there were some people who figured it out, but probably, uh, you know, it goes by so fast you don't really have tons of time to think. Uh, I love, too, that Desmond is truly content to just get drunk on a beach and slowly fade away. He's at that lowest of lows where there's there's nothing. He can't get back to Penny. He can't get back to the real world. This is it. Uh, and he's happy to fade away down to just implicitly refusing to help Saeed. Saeed says, I need somebody to help, uh, to help uh, run the boat. He goes, well... You better find somebody then. And back he goes to drinking Dharma the rum. Uh, with that, we cut to a flashback of Desmond, who's newly minted, uh, not newly minted, who's newly in America and without American money. That, of course, is where he meets Libby. There's some standard enough exposition about Desmond wanting to win the solo boat race around the world, which uh, I, of course, am reminded to the first couple episodes this season and the chatter online in 2005 of whether it was solo boat, solar boat, some sort of solar-powered, you know, rocket boat or whatever. Uh, but sure enough, it, it is a boat race done by one person. Uh, and this is all in order to take uh, the money from Widmore. I love, too, that the back of the pamphlet for this race says, Charles Widmore, industrialist, philanthropist, period. And it's just kind of... I don't know, it's authoritative and patting his own back at the same time. Very uh, very in line with Widmore and probably very in line with many, uh, many a corporate gentleman and gentle lady. Uh, anyhow, after this explanation, uh, including being without a boat, there's a crisscross moment that might feel contrived, if not for, quite frankly, our love of Libby. I have a boat. It was my husband's, but he got sick. He wanted to sail to the Mediterranean. He passed away about a month ago. I want you to have it. I, I can't take it, Miss. But you have to. He'd want you to. your husband's name? David. And what did he name his boat? 
Elizabeth. He named it after me. Thank you, Elizabeth. And I shall win this race for love. It would feel a little contrived if not for just how darned great these actors are, how much we believe in the characters, uh, to the point they have earned these moments. Um, it's, you know, I mean, it's a fantastic performance out of Cynthia Watros, as usual. To me, it's another reason why it was ultimately not the best choice to have her sent off the show. Um, it, uh, I mean, I I suppose it's to our benefit in the, uh, you know, as we head towards the finale of the series and she does return, uh, because it's an emotional connection and an emotional payoff that is well-earned, but it's just fantastic. And the fact that they don't, you know, they don't overdo it by her saying, you know, it's, the boat's name is Elizabeth, it's named for me. The fact that she then doesn't say, you know, but my nickname is Libby. You know, like, we get it. You can sit there and go, oh, Elizabeth. I thought her name was Libby. Oh, I get it. You know, it's it's just letting the, the moment breathe. It's terribly honest. Uh and it's just wonderful. And when Desmond says, you know, I'll win it for love, that could be hackneyed and silly, but it isn't because we we buy into the Desmond story. Uh, you know, we almost have a completer sense of, of Libby here as well. Uh, you know, we thought that she was just some crazy in the mental institution. Um, but a Nazi now, I was going to say she went there because of the death of her husband. I don't know that that's true i i would actually would have to pause one here one moment to think of the chronology i know that this is uh, uh three plus years ago so i suppose that could be that could line up properly yeah quick peek at lostpedia here it does place the uh the death of her husband david uh before going to santa rosa and they even have a uh, comment here libby had gone mad due to her husband's death uh, then it's footnoted to uh, an article here, uh, exclusive uh, uh, with a talk with uh, talk with Darleton, which I I suppose gets into it further and makes it a bit more uh, uh, a bit more canon. So there you go. That this is a scene, you know, kind of the the final Libby flashback, at least that comes to mind. Um, it gives us a bit more shading on that character um, that she's not just some you know absolutely crazy bonkers you know, stand-in-the-corner type uh, person in the mental institution, that it was due to this, you know, serious break uh, and this serious, well, serious heartbreak uh, that, that that put her there. So it adds weight to, to Libby, uh, and it we're coming from Desmond and his dedication towards something as pure and beautiful as love and his affirmation that, uh, that with the boat he will win the race. Anyhow, back on the island, Saeed is still trying to find his sailing buddy, and uh, Jin reports that he won't do it because he won't leave Sun. Sun, of course, ends the scene by saying he won't be leaving Sun because she's coming. How nice that they're getting the whole cast involved in this finale. Isn't that nice? It's not just montages on the beach for some of these people. They're, they're actually getting to play along here. Uh, the story then moves to Jack and company. 
uh, and their island trek. Sawyer learns that being caught in a net is just that. Um, the infamous Hurlybird swoops over them. At least it kind of sounds like they're saying Hurley. Uh, the big takeaway from all of that is that Michael shoots at the bird, but he's got nothing but empties. Sorry, man. I guess I forgot to load that one. Want to hand me the mag? The scene ends, uh, you know, it's great acting out of Harold Perrineau. Uh, I think sometimes he is, uh, his criticism of how Michael was handled sometimes I think colors how we view uh, the character of Michael or certainly how we view the actor. He's a fantastic actor. And the scene ends with Michael clearly having figured out, at least it's clear to me that he's figured out, that Jack has clearly figured out what's going on. A great moment to end the act, go to commercial, the plot has thickened. After the act break, Locke is crying in the woods, and Charlie kindly takes pity on him. You're feeling a little sorry for yourself. You, you may want to have a drink with your mate from the hatch. I hear he's a little despondent as well. What? Oh, that's right, you weren't there for the dramatic arrival of the funeral. I think he's pushed your button too many times, if you ask me. Desmond? Yeah. Desmond. I'm sure you two have a lot to talk about. Times in this episode where the writers were struggling with the fact that character that information needs to be spread very quickly, and you can't do it across an episode break. You know, you can't just say, you know, oh whatever the boat has arrived and then the episode ends and then though it's a few hours later in next week's episode people just take for granted that such and such information has happened because this is uh, even just this part is unfolding very very quickly you have scenes like this where it's it is just a recap scene the only the only purpose of that scene is for Locke to be told that Desmond is back period um from a strict dramatic sense, I don't know why this wasn't done off camera, but then you'd be saying, well, how does Locke know about this? And for Locke to arrive at the beach and say, hey, Charlie just told me. Yes, it would seem kind of, you know, a high school play where, you know, referring to action that you haven't seen also is not kind of the, the height of uh, dramatic uh, written sophistication. But it is a recap scene. It's recapping events from earlier in the episode. That said, it really doesn't bother me too much. It's Dominic Monaghan. You know, he, he makes it work, simply put. Uh, he's twisting the knife a bit to Locke. You know, Locke, who didn't take pity on Charlie when when, when Charlie needed it. Uh, here he is just saying, oh, yeah, you know, you missed out on the big news, blah, blah, blah. Hey, the two of you can cry together, you know, little girls. Uh, there's a bit of that in there. So with that, we move on. There's a quick scene of Sun Jin uh, joining Saeed. Sun tells it like it is, you know, I'm coming. And Jin kind of looks at Saeed and has a, a shrug and a look of, you know, ah, women. Uh, a smile on his face, of course. As a side note, I mean, the, the type of acting that Daniel Day Kim can do without dialogue is astonishing. It's astonishing. He might be one of the, the best actors on the show. 
Anyhow, uh, the show then moves back to uh, camp with Claire, remember her, uh, considering use of the pneumatic injection gun. Desmond thusly preachifies, having injected himself for three years, the implication being that it, uh, it, it, you know, the injections weren't needed. By the way, doing important work for three years. He's, he, he calls his time at the button with that. A JC reference, perhaps, was not Christ doing his important work for three years. Uh, now, of course, obviously, the, the differences are, at this point in the episode, questionable. Questionable differences, because how we, we're, we're losing faith in the importance of the button pushing. Of course, those who have kept the faith, it shall be rewarded by the end of uh, Live Together, Die Alone, Part 2. We then flash back to Desmond getting ready to do his Tour de Stade, which uh, is the fancy runner name for running all the sections in the stadium, uh, with Jack arriving in the background while Desmond is getting ready. Penny pulls up two moments later. What kind of stadium is this where people just drive onto the field? Uh, you know, it's not some high school stadium. It's big enough to have, uh, I think it's just the one tier to it, but it probably seats, you know, thousands. It certainly seats thousands of people, perhaps 10,000, 20,000. Uh, and people just drive on up in the middle of the night, you know, sad Jack post-surgery and Desmond training and Benny to confront him. You know, it's like, you know, must be, does a freeway run through the middle of the field here? Anyhow, I suppose I'm taking away from the the true bond between the characters in this scene, Penny and Desmond, uh, a bond which, of course, will keep them connected across many years, great distances, and some ocean, just like Ulysses and Penelope. It's great dialogue, too, uh, including Penny asking what he's running from, and Desmond saying that he's running to redeem his honor. After the flashback, Locke and Desmond catch up, with uh, references to the beginning of the season, Box Man saving the world. Uh, it's interesting that Locke brings his lack of faith to Desmond. Uh, and it's also very notable that as Locke recounts the Pearl, uh, the show intercuts footage of him watching the video and scenes from the video. It's a bit heavy. I do not recall the show having done that before. It, it's it's very much, you know, look here, remember this? Believe it. Believe what Locke is saying. Uh, kind of a heavy-handed scene, and the heavy-handedness continues to hammer his point home. Locke hands Desmond the orientation video. Really? He's carrying a 1980 VHS tape for reasons of dramatic effect? You know, and he says, we could go watch this. You know, well, you have to go back to where the VCR is anyway, at the Pearl Station. So it's, it is a moment of poor writing where they want to have a visual representation of this abstract thing, of the knowledge. So how is that represented? By physically taking out the tape and saying, aha, herein lies the answer, even though Desmond can't access it except in the Pearl Station. Anyhow, the scene and act ends with Locke saying, tomorrow we'll find out what happens if the button doesn't get pushed. It really is great seeing the momentum that the show has towards really not pushing the button. Uh, It's not some out-of-the-blue hit to us when, indeed, the button does not get pushed, but it's something that really is crafted and built and built and built. Uh, After the act break, Sun is vomiting over the side of the rail. Uh... 
but of course, it is a tender reminder that she's not seasick. It's the baby. Uh, and then at that point, Jin grabs her to show her one of the great WTF moments of the series. Something that I wish could be captured in the clip, but it's all but visual. It is, of course, the giant statue foot uh, with the rest of the statue missing. And it only has four toes, as, uh, as Saeed points out. It is a huge seed planted very early. To think how that was just some, like, you know, what? Is this aliens? Is this, who could, you know, look at the size of that foot? How big could that statue be? It's this incredibly out-of-the-blue moment. But, you know, doing what the podcast does best, looking back, it's like, all right. There was kind of, you know, a Greek-Egyptian vibe to the island in uh, the, you know, when, um, you know, 2,000 years ago when, when Jacob and his brother were born. So, you know, uh, the, these ancient peoples, they built a big old statue. That's happened many times in many places around the world. And what could have knocked it down? Well, gee whiz, it's the, uh, it, it was the Black Pearl. <laughs> there goes my losty cred there. The Black Rock. Wrong, <laughs> wrong uh, boat. Apologies uh, to everyone. I don't know what brought Pirates of the Caribbean on my mind, but you know, it was the Black Rock brought to the island. Um, uh, Richard on board, and then you know we've had uh, Jacob uh, hanging out uh, underneath that statue uh, for for all this time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it feels so much more uh, understandable now. But at the time, it was it was something that they didn't touch for forever. Uh, I think, in fact, maybe was the next time they referenced it, uh, season season five, right? Because at the end of season four, Ben moves the donkey wheel, as I recall. I'm trying to keep things straight here. Season three is we have to go back. Season four is Ben moves the donkey wheel, and they spend the beginning of season five skipping through time, and that's where we see the back of the statue. So this is a, as I say, a huge seed planted very early on. And, you know, it's a location that we are going to come to know very well in the last uh, third or so of the series. With that, the story moves to the hatch uh, with a power outage and things are feeling very familiar to the start of the season. Uh, you know, that the first time we were down in the hatch, similar music, kind of a lurking, creaking music, low lights, uh, as Echo steps out of the computer area to find the broken fuse box. None of this speaks particularly too well for Locke, who now is attacking anti-faith with the same fervor as he once had faith. I'm more sure about this than anything in my entire life. Not, uh, considering Locke's resume, not, not the best, uh, uh, endorsement, I suppose, but it, uh, here's a bit of an idea, too. Locke was the old John the Baptist. Now, Echo is John the Baptist, with Locke moving towards being a Lucifer type. Uh, this movement, of course, is completed after Locke dies, and Smokey takes the form of Locke. Uh, that then, of course, only makes Desmond the reluctant, soon-to-be Christ. 
Again, just a uh, continuation of that Desmond as Christ theory. With that, we flash back to Desmond in a, a boat. Uh, now, I'll mention too, I mean, it's, you know, there there is the story of um, uh, Christ and the apostles in a boat uh, on, is it the Sea of Galilee? Uh, but, you know, it, it being stormy. So here we, we kind of, you know, Desmond slash Christ in a stormy boat. Although, here it does not end with... Uh, with uh, Desmond walking on water, but uh, anyhow, the scene is slightly ironic. It just the fact that there's a scene, uh, and we know that they are, you know, or we'll we'll learn shortly, certainly that Desmond is close to the the island. Uh, the irony is that uh, the statue uh, that we, you know, whose foot we have just recently seen, uh, that statue was reduced to just a foot by a similar storm with a similar enough boat a few thousand years ago. At that point, the story wisely moves very quickly. Desmond gets a hit to the head. He passes out. He ends up on the shoreline with lots of blurry camera work. Uh, Then, of course, he's retrieved by a man in a rubber suit. And then we have the big reveal being... Who are you? I'm Inman. Kelvin Inman. Just this great moment of, you know... Obviously, you know, it's the guy from Saeed's flashback. It's the, the famous or the infamous uh, uh, Kelvin that, uh, that was referenced at the very beginning of the season. Uh, things, unsurprisingly, are starting to feel full circle. Things are starting to feel uh, interconnected and crisscrossed. Um, with that, it's some great fun to see Desmond's first time in the hatch. Uh, Kelvin, a, an uninspired slave to the button, just as Desmond will become, uh, down to the show, wisely repeating word for word the story of Desmond's first time, down to Kelvin saying, you know, just saving the world. The flashback continues with Desmond uh, watching the missing clip from the swan orientation, uh, the need, uh, pardon me, uh, watching the swan orientation, which he notes is missing the clip. Uh, there's the business of the need to wear the rubber suit and to take the vaccine every nine days. That's that's mentioned by Inman. Uh, with that, we go back to today. There's some rather unneeded exposition about who Echo is, although uh, that's between Desmond and Locke, although it does have the joke, we locked out a priest. Um, which, you know, again, if you want to take a religious reading to all of this, you know, they yes, they did lock out a priest. They did lock out a man of God. Now this is somebody who we know, you know, who we've seen. Let's see, we've seen Echo kill four people, not counting the drug plane scene, where I guess he was one of the bad guys, so he didn't really kill anybody. But we saw uh, De- Echo kill as a child. We saw him kill uh, when he was a drug lord, and then we saw him kill two of the others. So. We might not view Echo as the the most sainted of priests, but there is kind of this reflective moment of, you know, so the guy who they know as a priest, who they know to be on the path, you know, the the true path, quote unquote, you know, it's kind of like, so we're locking out him, uh, obviously with disastrous consequences. Echo climbs his way out of the hatch entrance from season one, the, the quarantine door, uh, and of course, he's a bit shocked to see that the door says quarantine. Uh, he runs into Charlie. Uh, apparently, he's ready for them to be back in league uh, again, which is also something that Charlie points out to him. 
that said, being told to help Echo or all will die is a good motivation for Charlie, and he follows. Uh, with that, we move back to Jack and company, and Kate realizes that they're being followed and quickly talks Sawyer into a gunfight. I love that Jack is left out of the planning session uh, and that, indeed, Sawyer takes another out, which is something he promised to do at the, uh, towards the end of last, uh, last week's episode. Um, as this shootout is happening, as an other is hit and the other one runs off, Michael looks truly panic-stricken. It's all falling apart. The entire plan that he's worked so well to perfectly manage, it's all falling apart. There's a call to action from Kate and Sawyer. You know, go get the guy that just ran off and blow his head off too. And then Jack stops it. At first we wonder if he's just being his typical killjoy self, but he's not. He's being uh, typically practical. No, I'm going, sir. I said no. You're crazy? We let him go, they'll know we're coming. He'll warn It doesn't it. matter if we catch him now. We've already been warned. What do you mean, warned? Why don't you tell them, Michael? Jack. I don't know what you're Stop buying! Here, Jack is his perfect bastard self and it works so wonderfully jack i've never loved you so much tell them tell them what you know what you're doing michael now tell them the truth tell them it was the only way they gave me a list what list had your names on it I had to bring all four of you back when they said I'd never see my son again. Who are they? It's like I said, they, they live in a camp with odds. I swear, that's it. You let Henry go? Did you kill them? I only see you. And leave me? Did you? I had to. I, uh, I couldn't find any other way. And, and, and Livy was a mistake. I, I, I didn't have time to think. But if you did have time, Still would have killed her, right? I'm sorry. You understand? I am sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, Michael, saying you're sorry over and over again, it doesn't... I was going to say it doesn't make it true. I, I believe that Michael is sorry. I believe that uh, this is a slippery slope that he didn't plan for. But, uh, you know... Uh, uh, Amidst the uh, the excellent acting out of Jorge Garcia, you know, Hurley brings up the point, you know, you still would have done it anyway, wouldn't have you? You still would have shot Libby because that was the only solution once she walked in. So, you know, it's, it's 
that you know Michael didn't think this out that he is he does have the blinders on to a degree that people you know he's done all of this and perhaps I waffle back and forth as to whether Michael is uh, you know a, a misguided hero to himself or to or a villain to the rest of us but here it certainly is <laughs> when it's laid out like this it, it certainly is leaning towards the the villain end and it's very fulfilling seeing support for Michael fade from from the the other people with him very very fulfilling and I, I love too that that um, as live together die alone part one starts to wrap up it's Jack that's adding the pressure no Hurley Hurley I can't we're all gonna get killed and you knew it and you let us come anyway it's too late to go back now Hurley we already called him balling us once if they don't believe that we trust Michael they'll kill us all I'm sorry that I didn't say anything but you have to know that I would never bring you out here if I didn't have a plan. This really is some of the best acting out of Matthew Fox, and it's also some of the best use of Jack. Jack, who can very often be making the wrong decisions, not thinking ahead enough. Uh, here, you know, he's played it perfectly where he does have this secret mission with Saeed, and it's it's... You know, his little plan has fallen apart, but he can piece it back together with an I'm sorry and an explanation. Whereas Michael's slightly larger mistake of, you know, letting the greatest villain that they've ever met escape, shooting two people, you know, that, that obviously the bigger mistake requires a much bigger band-aid. And even then, you know, he's, he's not quite forgiven. Um, with, with that the episode uh, starts to conclude, or again, this, this part of the episode, if you want to call it that, with a seemingly serene moment. Saeed praying, Sun and Jin sharing loving looks. Uh, and then there's just enough oomph to get us headed into part two. Saeed! That's the rock Michael described. We're here. Fantastic, fantastic episode. Jam-packed. Obviously, maybe not the the highest high of an ending, but it nor, you know, to be fair, it is not meant to be the ending of a self-contained episode. Uh, The adventure uh, on original broadcast, the adventure continued uh, you know, merely just on the other side of a commercial break. Uh, and as stated before, I'll be covering uh, uh, Live Together, Die Alone Part 2 next week. Uh, first, though, uh, let's take a look at Lostpedia and the bits and pieces for this part, Part 1. This episode marks the first appearance of Penelope and Charles Widmore, uh, which, you know, obvious enough, but uh, certainly you know, a moment to, to tip our hats to. Uh, this episode was the first flashback episode of someone not on flight at 815, and the second centered around a guest star, the first being, anyone? Story in SOS. Another bit of trivia here, Desmond refers to the others as the hostels during this episode, and Kelvin also uses the term in a flashback. This is the first time the name is used in the show. 
Uh, also, uh, according to the official Lost podcast, the crew started... <laughs> listen to this here. The crew started writing Live Together, Die Alone four weeks prior to its airing. Not shooting, but airing. Uh, the episode was shot in 17 days with two simultaneous crews, and the final scene with Penelope was... Uh, shot just five days before airing so obviously that last bit there is a reference towards you know the, the very ending of of uh the second hour but my goodness my goodness that is <laughs> that's that's dancing on the edge of a sword i mean shot shot in 17 days with two simultaneous crews that's just incredible that's you know racing along um and uh talk about pressure uh, last but not least, uh, a note here from Lostpedia. International versions of this episode aired in two parts, including uh, DVD releases, and they are missing several se- uh, scenes due to time constraints. They are as follows. A brief scene right after the opening title sequence where Kate tries to calm down the other survivors and asks Jack for help. Instead, the episode jumps directly to the title, uh, from the title to Desmond sitting at the campfire. Uh, then there's another scene here, a part of the flashback, where Kelvin talks to Desmond about him doing a lockdown thousands of times before. Uh, instead, in this edited version, it goes straight to Desmond triggering a fake lockdown. So there you go. That is it for the first hour of uh, Live Together, Die Alone. Uh, looking at the clock here, since we've just passed the hour mark, I certainly am uh, I'm glad that I uh, chopped the podcast into two parts, because uh, I dare say a two-hour Two-hour podcast might be a bit much to listen to, a bit much to download, etc. So looking ahead to next week, it will still be episode 223. It'll be uh, part two of Live Together, Die Alone. A reminder that that episode, as well as the one following it, uh, will be launching to the website, uh, (laughs) iTunes and the Lost Podcasting Network on Mondays. Uh, Starting in February, episodes will be released on Fridays. You can check out my other various goings-on at phgeek.com, where I blog, and you can too if you want. Uh, there's the PH Geek podcast on iTunes. There's the Alcatraz podcast by PH Geek that we're, we're uh, thick in the middle of right now. Uh, if you'd like to share feedback about this podcast, I would love for you to do so. You can call the voice message line at 732-707-1815. You can say hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. And last but not least, you can find the show on iTunes, where reviews are always very, very much appreciated. So thank you very much for listening. I always appreciate uh, all the lovely downloads that I get and notes and tweets and hellos from listeners. Uh, And I look forward to joining you again next week for... 223 part two of live together die alone take care everyone and bye bye